0: Now, the third week into the Green Sundays, the Sundays after Pentecost, a time in the Christian year when we reflect and think about the nature of Christian discipleship, the cost of Christian discipleship, and the ways and the means of being a Christian disciple. Last week, I read to you uh, something that we've uh, read from time to time at St. Luke's the five marks of a disciple and I thought I'd read them again because they may have something to do particularly with the reading from 2 Corinthians which I intend to preach on in addition to the Gospel where we have two healing stories. These five marks are one who keeps the Sabbath and commits to attending worship every Sunday, one who witnesses to an intentional faith as modeled in the baptismal covenant, One who seeks to honor the tithe as the biblical standard of faithful financial giving to the church, one who uses his or her spiritual gifts in the work of the upbuilding of the church, and one who reaches out to others with the love of Christ. You know, this isn't the only list, this isn't the complete list, this isn't the definitive list, but it's a list. And if people began to think about what it is, how do I put it into my hands, you you could do worse. Today, we have, I think, perhaps one of the best of the more subtle passages in the New Testament about the nature of Christian stewardship in its fullness and how we might understand that in our own lives uh, in its complexity. So I need to do a little 3995 Biblical Scholarship for you here, so you'll have some idea of what I'm talking about. Let me begin by saying there are a great many New Testament scholars who for a long time have thought that um, 1st and 2nd Corinthians is really a a compilation of more than two letters. So, you know, we could actually be having 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th Corinthians, but we've uh, conflated them into, into two 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Why is that important? Because this represents then a series of letters to the Corinthian church in Paul's absence that are dealing with the pastoral realities on the ground. So what I was taught in seminary was whenever you read any of Paul's letters, it's like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. So you don't know exactly what was said to him either by messengers or letters that got to him on his missionary journey. And today he mentions, or just before today's passage, uh, uh, something about the Macedonian congregation. We don't have any letters to the Macedonians, but I expect it's a series of uh, letters to various congregations that he founded. More on that in a minute. So here's the situation on the ground for Paul. I've mentioned to you many times that the Christian Church in Corinth is a church that was on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement in the New Testament. They were a conflicted group that was uh, afflicted by factionalism, by cliques, by uh, being susceptible to the latest a uh, wind that blew in the community and so forth. So here's what happened. Paul founds this church. He goes away and in his absence other teachers and missionaries come into Corinth and they tell the Corinthian congregation that what Paul has told them is not correct and what they're telling them is correct. And so they need to change their views with regard to how you practice Christianity. One of the issues that was uh, the case for some of these uh, other missionaries who came in was to say, contrary to what Paul has said to you, if you wish to be a faithful Christian, you need to keep the Jewish law completely. And that means that all males who are Christians must be circumcised and you need to keep the law. Paul has said that for Gentiles, they don't need to do that. It is not necessary. Those who are part of the covenant and people, the Jews, himself included, may keep the Jewish law. We have no evidence that Paul stopped keeping the law uh, wherever he was, except in certain locations where he believed it was not necessary or felt it expedient because of his missionary work. So in the interim, while he then is engaged in an elaborate defense of his apostleship, he's writing letters back to the Corinthian church, explaining to them what he believes his credentials to be, how he understands his God-given vocation, and what his view is about the mighty works of Jesus Christ and how they impact not only on the people of Corinth corporately, but on every individual Christian person there, personally and individually. Somewhere along the line, during the founding of the congregation and subsequent to this, Paul has received an agreement from the leadership of the Corinthian congregation to make a donation to the Christian church in Jerusalem. And he has told them, just as he has in Macedonia and in Philippi, and in other places, that he is going to be the one to deliver this contribution soon. So, in today's reading, he is reminding the Corinthians of their promise. And he's saying to them, You need now to step up and you need to match your commitment, as he says, to other people's earnestness. And what he means by that is the earnest resistance. To doing this. I read this passage this week and I thought, here we are, Parish Life 2009. We have uh, a group of people who made a promise. Now they're mad at Paul or they think that Paul led them astray. They've listened to these people and actually believed them, some of them, and so now they're prepared to renege on their promise or at least they're wavering. And Paul is saying, you need now to be able to honor your commitments and to understand that part of the Christian character is to be generous. And the reason I commend this species of generosity to you is that the Savior was generous to a fault and, in fact, gave his life for you. And because of that, Jesus constitutes a template that you lay over your own habits and behavior and relationship, and understand that generosity, both in terms of time, talent, and treasure, is absolutely essential to your progress and your spiritual maturity. And he has a wonderful line in this reading, which is, we need to discover, in so many words, how to match our abundance with other people's need how to match our abundance with other people's need. He means, of course, in this particular case, that Cor- the Corinthian church needs to deliver on the promise to make a contribution to the Jerusalem church, which was in straitened financial circumstances. But there is a broader thing here that he is at pains to deal with, and that is that matching your abundance with other people's need involves the full range of your human character as it bears on reaching out in love and concern for other people. And you've heard me say to you before that that might involve finding the ways and the means to commend to other people the practical wisdom that you have learned about living that is going to be helpful to other people as they live. I do not mean when I say this giving people advice about how to live their lives. I always say this at weddings. Unwanted advice has the odor of ancient fish. Somehow we need to understand how we can commend the practical wisdom that we have learned in ways that are going to be upbuilding as it says in the five marks of uh, discipleship. How do we do that in a way that is going to uh, add to the general welfare and improve the health of relationship? So generosity and the generous spirit is at the heart of understanding how we match our abundance to other people's needs. A wonderful passage in the New Testament about stewardship in its fullness. One of the most widely attested facts in the gospel witness is that Jesus healed people. You know, in biblical scholarship, when, when you uh, do the work in, in traditional scholarship about whether this or that is historical in the New Testament, one of the methods in scholarship that is used is called multiple attestation. Multiple attestation is something that we have in spades for the healings of Jesus. Some of the most widely attested to facts in the New Testament. But we also see that unlike other healers who were alive at the time of Jesus and before and after, Jesus's ministry does not focus itself on healing. In fact, the healing stories always point to something deeper or something other than the actual healing itself. And today in Mark's Gospel we have two healings that actually focus on a particular thing that is very important in our understanding of how God's healing work is in the creation, is in the hearts of all faithful people, and is readily accessible to every one of us. The story tells us that someone has come to Jesus, who uh, Jarius is a leader in that community, and he says that his daughter is sick, mortally sick, and Jesus begins to go to his house. And as he goes to the house, the crowds are all around him, but he feels someone has touched him. And the person who has touched him is a woman who has had a hemorrhage for 12 years and has been to every physician and medical expert that she could go to and is no better. But somehow Jesus feels this woman touch her and he comments on it whereupon all of his the disciples around him say people are all pushed in and crowding around you and you say who touched me? So the woman comes and tells him that this is what her affliction is and she now believes herself to be healed. The time that all of this took creates now a situation where the little girl, who turns out to be 12 years old, dies. And Jesus continues on to Jairus' house, even though he's told that there's no reason to go there. And he goes in the house, puts all the people outside except the family members, and he heals the girl. Now here's what this is about. In both incidents, instances, the two people who have been healed were in the religious view of the time, in Jesus' own religious outlook, considered unclean. And to have anything to do with them, to touch them, or to be involved in any way with them, would put you in a state of uncleanness. The woman who had the hemorrhage for twelve years was perpetually unclean and was therefore in all probability treated like a pariah. And when the little girl died, she was a corpse and a corpse is unclean and cannot be touched or you will have to go through an elaborate machination to get yourself ritually clean again. None of these things deterred Jesus. And this is a story about how Jesus, the Son of God, is willing to move beyond the proscriptions of his own religious tradition to reach out and to save and heal the lost. And for the people who wrote Mark's Gospel, it was for them encouragement to be willing to do that in their own life as Christian people. And so that means that you and I should always be engaged in a process of reflection with regard to what does it mean when you hear preachers like me say that we believe in God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness, and that it is important for us to always err on the side of inclusion, and to understand that sometimes this will bring us into conflict with traditions and ways and means of practices that are very old, that we believe must be adhered to when in fact God is calling us to move beyond those things to be faithful and to be true witnesses to the new work that God continuously does in the hearts of all faithful people. So this week, think about how you might have an occasion to match your abundance to other people's need. See if you have an opportunity to uh, reach out to somebody that you might not have thought was a worthwhile recipient of your generosity and know that that kind of inclusion and that ability to do that is a godly thing and that God in his grace supports you in this process. Amen.